every single industry today triumphs on data. Mm. Every single thing that you do, you're using systems, you're using technologies, you are generating all this amount of data. So it's either you take advantage of it or you just let the data sit stale and you do nothing with it. Most things don't matter, but the few that matter, matter a lot. Welcome to 8020 Productivity, the show dedicated to helping you do more by doing less so that you can have more time and energy to enjoy life to the fullest. Now here's your host, author, speaker, and productivity nerd, Anthony Sani. I have become very curious about AI or artificial intelligence. What is it? How does it work? And perhaps most importantly, with all the hullabaloo about it, what are some of the impacts of AI on our work and productivity? And what are some of the future implications of AI? This curiosity led me to reach out and I was very happy when my guest today, Kwame Asidu, agreed to come on the show to answer some of these questions. Kwame is the CEO and co-founder of Braintoy, a first-of-its-kind technology company whose specialized AI-based platform makes it easy and possible, I should say, for individuals and businesses with no AI technical skill to leverage the power of this amazing technology. As they say at Braintoy, they use AI to make AI accessible and fast. Kwame's decades-long work with AI is extensive, from academic research to leadership in energy and financial industry sectors, developing AI solutions out there, to even being a subject matter expert on the subject of AI. We talk about why everyone should be paying attention to AI, what makes it so powerful and how it is already being used, how it may be used, how you can engage the AI revolution. We also talk about two less talked about aspects of AI the current limitations of AI, and very interestingly, the ethics of AI. With no further ado, let's get right into the interview with Kwame Asidu, CEO of Braintoy. Hope you enjoyed, hope you learned something, hope you find it interesting. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to this episode of AT20 Productivity. I am so excited to have our guest on the show today. Now, AI is something that's really, in a sense, taking over the world. But it's a concept that I think so many people don't really understand. And so our guest today is going to shed some light on that. He's really the best person to do this, I believe, because his company doesn't just do AI. They do AI for AI. Thank you so much, Kwame Asedu, my guest today. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me, Anthony. It's a pleasure. Well, you and I met a while back while you were helping develop some content for um, the Southern Alberta Institute of Technology around AI. And since then, it's been it's been a while, but I'm glad we finally, our schedules finally meshed and you could make it. Maybe we should start right where I think a lot of our listeners would be would have questions. I feel like AI, artificial intelligence, is something that a lot of people throw around. That word is thrown around a lot. Definitely you hear it in education, in business. Oh, we should use AI, machine learning. But I don't know if a lot of people actually know what it is. I certainly don't know exactly what it is. So maybe let's start there. Tell us what exactly is AI? Yeah, to explain it in layman terms or in ways that would be easy for all of us to understand, let's, let's think of ourselves as humans. And, you know, we are intelligent. And the reason is 
we take in information, we process them, we think of them, we deliberate on them, mm. and then we use them in making decisions. And that is what we're trying to teach computers to do. So we're trying to create systems that are intelligent to be able to make decisions or, or systems that can make decisions intelligently and independently um, without you necessarily writing rules or telling it that if this happens, do that, or after this, do that, right? So they have developed these things called algorithms mm. that basically can also take in information. And this information could be, they could be signals, they could be audio, they could be video, they could be images, they could be text or natural language. And computers can take these in, they can learn from them, and then now they begin to make decisions proactively. Yes, make decisions proactively. And basically that's, that could be accounted as AI. So that's the plot behind every Hollywood blockbuster movie, right? Where, where AI goes rogue and takes over like the Matrix or what was the one Johnny Depp did? I can't remember. Like there have been so many movies about how AI goes rogue and takes over and says it, it knows what's yeah. better for humanity. Is that, I know this is probably a silly question, but is that even a thing? Like when you said make decisions proactively, part of me went, yep, that sounds like a Hollywood movie right there. <laughs> yeah, there's been that conversation. I think people have called it singularity, where they think AI is going to take over human race, and you know, and and, and there are some people that are very cautious about the capabilities of intelligent systems today. But I would say we are nowhere near AI being that intelligent mm. or, or, or capable. We're still working on developing AI solutions and trying to make them more intelligent. If you've heard of artificial general intelligence, we are even nowhere near that. And now people are beginning to develop theories that could help us practically build some of these autonomous systems that are that intelligent like humans to be able to. So we are not close. So don't be afraid. Don't be alarmed. You know, for now, we are applying these AI techniques in improving efficiencies and reducing costs in increasing profitability in different ways. And yes, embedded in robots, as an example, so that they can take over some of the routine things that we do and they can, for instance, in the manufacturing industry, so that maybe on an assembly line, they can assemble things like cars or, or different types of systems. But people are usually afraid of AI taking over and we are nowhere near that. You, you said so much that I'm hoping we can unpack as the conversation proceeds. So some of the things that jumped out to me was you said AI is right now being used more for improving efficiency, improving profitability. And you also mentioned earlier on that it can do video, it can do text, it can do audio. It's like there's a lot to talk about with AI, but I'm curious as to how you got into AI. We'll circle back to some of those more topical bits for sure. But how does a person wind up as, and we'll, for the listeners, we'll talk more about why Kwame is so deep into AI and why he's such, a, such an authority in this area. But how did you get here? in this rather, quite frankly, obscure field up until recently, how did you find your way into AI? Yeah, I, I, I have a bachelor's in computer science and psychology. And when I was looking at mo moving on to do like a master's degree, I was look, reading a lot of different research papers. And then I found some professors were doing this thing called AI. And this is about maybe 14 years ago. 
And they were using algorithms and they were proactively predicting stuff. They were detecting things from videos and from images. And it was, I was very fascinated about mm. it. So when I started doing my master's, my, my supervisor was working on cadastral systems, which is basically lantern systems. And there are a lot of data in that. There are videos, there are audio recordings tied to beats. Well, the, the goal was to ensure tenure security for indigenous people. Mm. And that means that you have all these deeds which are documents, you have videos, you have images. So with my interest in doing more with some of these information that we have, I decided that instead of just building database systems that using policies that can ensure tenure security, I could actually learn from these using these algorithms or AI techniques that have been developed and maybe ensure tenure security among indigenous people. Mm. So my goal was to try to use this technique to help. But the more I got into it, the more exciting it became because there were so many opportunities for AI and I could see so many problems that this thing could solve. So I was always taking courses in computer science about this. As soon as I see anything that has to do with <laughs> AI, machine learning, algorithms, anything like that, discrete mathematics, I will take them. And I was fortunate to, to be able to apply them practically because there's a difference between mm. taking theoretical courses and applying them practically. So I, I started applying it not just to my thesis, but also at work. So I, I got a job and then I started predicting. One of the first things I did was to predict customer churn, customers who are potential flight risk of leaving an organization. Wow. And why and at what probability. So that was very fascinating. So then I started just looking at ways in which I, could, I can apply it in solving meaningful problems. So that's basically how I got into it. This idea of teaching a computer to intelligently learn and make decisions like a human could do was just fascinating to me. Wow. This is something that I think our listeners would definitely enjoy because one of the things, one of the principles is that we believe in, that I talk about at least in my book and even throughout this podcast as it evolves, is this concept of intersection of your strengths. So here's a person who studied computer science and psychology. First of all, very fascinating combination. I've heard computer science and math. I've heard computer science and statistics. You are the first person, at least that I know, who studied computer science and psychology. So now, how much of that psychology was went into play in you being able to, say, marry coding and computer science with human behavior? Because really what you did that first job was using you know, AI basically to predict human behavior. Yeah. I'll tell you why I got into psychology, actually. I've always wanted to understand human behavior and how we work. And I personally, when I was growing up, I was very shy. So I, I couldn't even hold conversations. And so I've always been fascinated about how, how is, you know, the formation of a human and the, that development. And then when, when I went to school, I saw, okay, I could actually do psychology. So I started picking these courses mm. in my second year. And then I had a professor that advised me to do a combined major because he thought I had an affinity for this and I could, I could do it. So it was for me to understand human behavior. And the reason that was important for me was if I am going to work in, a, in an organization and I struggle with interacting with people, then understanding how peop, the, hum, the human psychology works will help me so that 
even though I'm a techie or I'm a technology guy mm-hmm. doing computer science, I will be able to interact and I can function properly. So initially, it was just to improve myself. But with time, I realized that this is fascinating and things like industrial psychology caught my attention. And so I married those and I did a combined major. But you can see how understanding humans mm. can help with adopting AI because every one of these algorithms that are built or that have been developed in, in the AI field and used in solving problems mimics the human behavior. Take one called neural network, which most of us use, and you might have heard this word called uh, deep learning, which is basically a neural network. And there are so many different architectures of them, and the different architectures have different names, like TensorFlow, and I don't want to get too, uh, into that. <laughs> oh, the more words you throw out, the more you just have to explain after. But basically, we try to learn how the human brain works how information is fired from one neuron to another. Um, And we try to mimic this. And because of that, we've created this artificial neural network. So with me, understanding that human behavior, the psychology of humans combined with computer science, it was easy for me to embrace this new technology that I came across called AI. And now it was easy for me to also apply in solving problems in different industries. In fact, that Cadastral systems mm. was not in computer science. My master's in, in geomatics engineering, so I'm also an engineer. I just oh, wow. Don't mention it. But yeah, you are able to apply this in so many different industries and, and different verticals. How much of this was you just falling into it? And then obviously the first bit was very intentional, uh, very strategic. But as your career has unfolded, how much of it was just you had this in a sense, very versatile foundational knowledge and skill with AI. And so I see, I see you've worked in the energy f- sector, you've worked in the financial sector, you've obviously your, your thesis was with an academic institution. Like how much of it was just, oh, I can use this here as well. And oh, I can do it here as well versus actually setting out at the onset with that. In- so I think apart from the initial stages, most of them were things that just comes to you based on the environment you find yourself and the people you interact with. Mm. Because, for instance, utility, before I got into working with a utility company, I I didn't know more about the systems there. But having conversations with people opened my eye to what is possible. And that is the beauty about understanding the principles of AI and what it could be used for. Because once you interact with people, all of a sudden you can see opportunities where this technology will be could be applied and the potential benefits, mm. right? So I would say maybe about about 60% of it had been me just falling into them because it's I find myself in an environment, I can just spot problems, and I find people who can relate to me when it comes to those problems, and we might want solutions for them. And maybe as we go on, I can tell you some others. I can give specifics on some of the problems that we're solving. 100%. I was looking up the, some of the latest with, at least with Brain Toy now, some manufacturing predictive stuff that you're doing. So we'll definitely talk about that. But I like, I like what you just mentioned now about principles. 
um, principles. So the one of the episodes we did was just talking about how it's better to learn principles than to learn methods, because you can always apply principles to different situations and then come up with methods. So maybe that, that might be a good place to segue into Brain Toy, because for those of you listening um, and don't know, Brain Toy has developed a first of its kind. It's actually a an operating system for AI. So it's a way to deploy AI without having to code, which is just it's just mind blowing all by itself. But that tells me that the creators of AI, of which you know Kwame, you're a co-founder of the company and the technical officer, chief technical officer, if I'm not mistaken, they have to have understood really bedrock principles of AI to be able to create something that can deploy AI without getting into the weeds of AI. I'm saying AI a lot, but <laughs> maybe you can tell us about how much the, I, the concept of principles led you to create this really unique um, offering in BrainToy. Yeah, so if, if you think of AI, like when we're talking about principles, it, it, it's a series of, again, let me use the word principles that, <laughs> that evolve into techniques and methods that are applied in solving problems. Now, what we found was that these techniques and methods that influence the, or that are used in developing solutions have led to the development of very complex technologies. Mm. So these people are applying, most companies were applying the principles in developing platforms or solutions that could enable people like you and I to, to adopt this emerging technology and apply it, but they were just too complex. So we ask ourselves this question that AI is useful and it's supposed to make our life easy, improve efficiencies and, and all of that. But if AI is supposed to make our life easy, then why are the technologies for building AI so complex? Mm. Why can't we use AI to make the development of AI also easy? Because that's another way of improving our lives with AI, right? So that that is that is where Brentoy came from. That's where we sat back, we and, and we, we, you know, and we and we we thought more about what make up AI. What's the foundation, and how can we also make it easy for people to adapt this technology, to embrace it? And when I say people, I'm not just talking about computer scientists, because if you just want to leave it up to computer scientists to embrace this or to use it, it will never scale. Mm. And people like the pioneers of AI have even likened AI to electricity. Wow. Which means that, you know, we're all not electricians, but we all use electricity at home. And we all know how electricity works also. So if I buy a device, I just have to look at the voltage and I know how to plug it and so on and so forth. And AI is becoming this general purpose technology that is disrupting every industry. It's actually very difficult to think of an industry where AI will not disrupt. Oh. So if, if that is the case, then we have to empower everyone to be able to apply it. And for us to be able to do that, we need to really understand the fundamentals of AI, what makes up AI techniques and how, how they work so that we can adapt it and, and, and apply it in making it easy for other people to also embrace this and use it in solving problems. Very interesting. 
So, but there was something you mentioned now that I want us to, to delve into a little bit more. You said you can't imagine an industry that AI will not disrupt. What industries is AI already disrupting that we may not even know about, like day-to-day life? You said the word algorithm a few times, and every time I click on YouTube, the YouTuber is talking about, you know, the YouTube algorithm, the YouTube algorithm, you know, the Google algorithm, this algorithm, that algorithm. So I suspect there are already aspects of our lives that is already being silently disrupted by AI that we don't know. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about those, and then what are... What what is it about AI that makes you state, you know, that you can't imagine any industry that AI won't disrupt? So let's go through those two things. All right. So for, first up, the YouTube example, mm-hmm. it's very true. And most people use YouTube without even knowing that there is AI in the background. That recommendation that comes to you after you've watched a video or... You know, you go to you go to Google search and then you type in you type in ranks. In fact, recently I searched masterclass. So I was I was trying to learn some there's there's a masterclass about negotiations and I, I, I looked it up on Google and then I and then as soon as I went to YouTube for about a week and a half, I've always been seeing adverts on YouTube about masterclass. Maybe right. no, maybe maybe that's just coincidence Kwame, right? Maybe <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. Maybe it, it's from it, the it, ether. It, it, Maybe it's the universe trying to tell you something. <laughs> right. So if you if you type in anything on Google, you go to YouTube, you'll find it. And if you watch something on YouTube, you'll get recommendations from from YouTube. That's because people like you or people similar to you, people with similar behavior and characteristics, also after watching this, watch the other video, mm. right? So this is one of the ways in which AI is used in our everyday life. Most of us have Netflix at home. And Netflix, especially when you set it up, will ask you to select about three different movies. And then based on that, it will use that to, as a criteria to make recommendations on what movies you, are, you might be interested in because they have a lot of content, but you cannot mm. browse through all of them. So they have to show you different ones and so somebody's netflix might look completely different from yours just based on the movie and it's just based on your interest so this is this is another way we see ai in everyday life we all use google maps as an example and you know we want the shortest possible way to get to a particular location we search and this is this is again ai in the background and usually as you use it as you use like maps let's say from home to work when you wake up in the morning, it will quickly make a, it will tell you there is traffic on this way and it's going to take you this many minutes to get to work. These are some of the proactive ways in which AI is being used. And oh, we all use them every day and we don't, we don't even realize them. So that is one aspect of, or, or that's your first question, right? Yeah, like how is and it then, already disrupting us? I mean, just, just to stay on that point for a little while. I know I started using this app called Notion. And this is not a plug for Notion if you're listening. I think Notion is great, but if you want to check it out, it's an awesome productivity tool. And it has, it incorporates with Google Keyboard or something where you can dictate your voice, you can dictate to it, and it will translate it to text. And I remember you mentioned earlier that AI also uses audio. I noticed that, maybe you can tell me if this is right or wrong, the first few times I would talk to it, it would get my words wrong. And then I'd correct it manually. And now 
it's almost like it can read my mind. Even words I say weird, it just recognizes them. So is that also, is there some AI in that as well, some machine learning going on there? Yes, there is, there is voice recognition in the background. There is also pattern recognition mm. also in the background. There is also a lot of learning with vocabulary as an example. And so, and, and in fact, that is a great example that even with all of us still get this, this example that you gave in our everyday life because we, when we use the phone, the, the QWERTY keyboard mm-hmm. on our phones, you realize that it's the same. It's the same thing. You keep you start typing, and then with time, it begins to learn, and then it starts making recommendations on what it thinks you're going to type. Uh, Google G- Gmail does the same thing now. Most of the emails also do do, do the same thing. So mm. yes, that is AI in the background learning, and yeah, voice recognition, pattern recognition, uh, natural language processing. These are all some of the techniques that have been applied. And that makes that that possible. Fantastic. Yeah. And I can give more examples on on how AI is disrupted because some of the Netflix and all of these are things that we might not necessarily be working with. You know, we use them at home. But if we work in a in an industry, mm. take utility as an example, or take a telecommunication as an example, or oil and gas, we have competitors, and these competitors are using AI to build use cases that is disrupting our industry, and if we, we don't embrace, we'll be left behind. For instance, safety is one really important thing for a lot of companies. Right? Safety at the workplace. And there are so many use cases around safety at the workplace. Are people wearing masks now, as an example? And this is something Braintoy is working on with, with some companies. Are people wearing their helmets? There are, there are cameras that are set up in, in oil and gas plants that are streaming every single day, and sometimes they want to even detect wildlife. Wow. Right? Now, you have terabytes of videos. You cannot put someone behind it to be watching the video yeah, to see which animal yeah. are right? So that's, that's a very simple use case that it's been, it's been used. And what is happening, that particular use case is in that domain called computer vision, computer which is similar vision. to a human looking at an image taking that image and processing it and then making a decision to say, oh, this is black, this is white, this is a human being, this is an animal. So wait, that, so, that, that's, that's kind of, well, that's really deep because now if, if, if okay, maybe, I, maybe I'm getting too excited and ahead of myself here, but if we can teach these machines to, in a sense, if they can, what you called computer vision, so yes. what's stopping I say us, but really you guys, what's stopping us from then doing hearing, which is audio, I'm guessing, smell, taste, to the point where a machine can perceive the physical world really really in a way that approximates how a human being does? Is that something that's even possible down the line? And what would be the implications of something like that? Yeah, I, I, I think that is what, so you asked a question earlier about artificial general intelligence, mm. and that's what some researchers are trying to work to, towards. Right? So yes, we process image, but maybe, maybe we, can, we can use computers to detect more. I don't know if you've heard of this emotion detection. No. So this is, this is one of the new things around where companies are applying artificial intelligence techniques. So as you and I sit on this call, 
and you know we are recording your faces or maybe through an image, it's able to detect, are you happy or are you sad? You know, how, how are you feeling right now? It's trying to perceive your emotions. So a combination of all of this, you know, will, will help us get it close to how humans behave because that's what we are trying to mimic. Mm. We're trying to mimic, you know, all the behaviors of humans so that we can also teach a computer to do the same. So it's, it's on the way, but it will take us a long, a long time. really long time to get there. But researchers are working on it and everyone is doing their best. To, so what's to, stopping to, it? Like what's slowing it down? It sounds exciting. There must be, usually there's some kind of bottleneck, right? It's either computational power or I don't, I don't, I don't think funding is a problem for AI. People are trying to throw money at it from all angles. What do you, what from your view is the bottleneck? I think you've, you've mentioned one already, which is computational power. Okay. But now we've gotten to a point where we have a lot of computational power. We're able to process a lot of things in fact, fairly faster and 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 also at a very cost-effective rate. So, so that has been taking good. But also, there are a lot of technical challenges. You know, we we still have to learn and really understand even how we can how can we collect even some of this information in a way that makes sense for a computer to learn from. Mm. Right. It, it's not it's not always just about the quantity of data, but sometimes it's also about the quality of data. And quality data has become, it's a problem. And so how can we really maybe normalize this data, transform it in ways that make sense for computers to even be able to learn from accurately to be able to uh, make the, the, the proper decisions? So... If you are really talking about getting to the point of artificial general intelligence, something that looks like a human, I would just say that humans still have a long way to go mm. when it comes to building these technically, right? Theoretically, we also need to do a lot of studies and even understand the human, how humans make these decisions so that right. we can try to incorporate them into systems. and. You know, we are still struggling with understanding the human behavior and how it was created to be able to implement them into technology. So we still we still have a way to. Progress. Yeah, we've been we've been trying to learn even about ourselves for thousands and thousands of years. Like you're trying to build a model of something you don't entirely understand yet. And then after that, you still have all these other technical technical challenges to talk about. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Before we move on, because I do want to talk about Brain Toys projects and what Brain Toys is doing. But before we move on to that, I don't want to leave the last, the last half of that question hanging. So the first half you've answered thoroughly. The second half is what are the principles of AI that make you say confidently that you can't imagine any industry that AI will not disrupt? And I think you've kind of started to hint at it already from the answers you've given me so far. But I'd like it if you could just spell out what those principles are and why you think those principles will translate to any industry. Yeah. So I think it just has to do with not necessarily even the principles. It just has to do with the the currency that or one of the most important currencies that we have now or or maybe currency is not the word one of the most important gems that mm. every everybody has and that is the data. data see this conversation we're having is generating a lot of data every single thing that 
we do today, we leave a footprint because we're using a computer, we're using a mobile phone, we're using all these devices that collect this data. And sometimes we might not be tapping into it, but most times they are, they are stored somewhere and we can tap into it and make use of it. And with those data comes some type of behavior or characteristics which defines what is really happening in, 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 in the context of where or how that data was collected. Mm. And so if I can really dig into that and understand, get some insights on what is happening and use that in proactively making decisions, then I will have an upper hand over somebody, over, over my competitor who is not doing anything with it. And every single industry today triumphs on data. Mm. Every single thing that you do you're using systems, you're using technologies, you are generating all this amount of data. So it's either you take advantage of it or you just let the data sit stale and you do nothing with it. And everybody is trying to take advantage of their data because they want to understand the problems happening in systems, they want to understand the engagements that they're having with their clients. They want to be further enrich their customers' engagement so they can increase profits, as we, as we spoke about. Mm -hmm. If you want to do all of these things, then you have to study your data and you have to apply this technology. And it's very difficult. Which company today does not want to thrive on data? On data. I can't imagine. There is none. I can't imagine. Right. I mean, some of them don't even, unfortunately, a lot of companies, especially I would say small to medium, perhaps, are just letting the data go. They're not even collecting the data to the point where they yes. can even make an intelligent decisions on it. But all the big players, like you're saying, they know the value of their data. They collect data like it was gold, right? Exactly. And mm -hmm. I like you use gold. So gold is a gem and it's valuable. And if anybody has it, they will not want to lose it because they know this, this like it's money, right? And if we go back to tying into electricity, like we said, there is no industry today that can function without electricity. This podcast True. is not possible without electricity. 100%. Right? Now, maybe the inventors of electricity did not think about it this way. Mm. When Even when the, the first light bulb was, was invented, you know, maybe they, they didn't think about its application they didn't think that it would permeate into the lives of everyone now that we are so reliant on it and we can't do without it. And that is what AI is becoming. Mm. That it's getting to a point where everybody generating data would have to have insight into this data. And everybody would also have to be proactive in using them in making decisions so they can serve humanity better. I like Which that. means that if you don't embrace it, you are going to be left, left behind. behind. That is the... And, oh, sorry. Go on. Go on. So I didn't interrupt. Finish, finish that thought. Finish that thought. Yeah. But apart from, mm. apart from being left behind, mm. you could also be crashed. Mm. You, will not, uh, time, you, you may not even be, be, be in existence. <laughs> right? so, that got dark you know very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> dark but true. Dark but true. It's like the electricity. Yeah. If, you, if, you, if you didn't adopt electricity, you would be crushed by now. Like You would be nowhere. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. 
<laughs> no, I like I really like the electricity analogy for AI because the more I think about it, the more I realize what you're saying is a hundred percent true. There, there are even people who are close to more advanced applications of AI than you and I see in our day-to-day lives. And, and people like the, the CEO of Google recently actually called, he said, he said the discovery of AI is, to him, is more important than, I, I don't think important is the word, but it's, it's important than the discovery of fire. Wow. We're going to, for the listeners, we're going to find this quote and stick it in the show notes so you can check it out. But that is an interesting statement. Yeah. Yeah, The the CEO of Google, this is what he said. And I don't know if, I don't remember if the word was, is more important than fire, but he he basically likened the discovery of AI to the discovery of fire fire by human. So you can, and you see how fire has been useful in the, or is useful in, in our lives. And Andrew Angie is is likening it to electricity as it being the next electricity. electricity wow. So pioneers of AI and people who are really close to advanced technologies or advanced applications of AI are making these analogies, which tells us where this is headed. And these are the leaders in the, in this digital economy. Wow. Right? What was that other gentleman's name? Well. Andrew. What was his name? Andrew. Andrew, I call him Andrew Angie because mm-hmm. if you you can guess, yeah, it's Andrew Angie. That's his name. Okay, how do you spell a, the Angie? Is it A N G I E or? Oh, just Angie. Oh, N G. Just N. Oh, N G. Yes. Okay, Andrew Angie. All right, we'll look him up and stick some yeah. info about him in the show notes as well for listeners who want to who want to check him out. But yeah, this is definitely this is interesting for me. Okay, this this will be a good point for us to segue into some of the stuff brain toys doing because you mentioned something earlier where you said that you know organizations that don't adopt this will be left behind, but then even people who don't. And when I was looking through brain toys offerings, I noticed that you had uh, team offerings and organizational like enterprise level and individual level so as we go into the next section of the podcast now i'd like you to because a lot of the listeners might be thinking yeah that's all great that's all great like google can talk about ai they have all this data you know whoever the big retailers can talk about ai how does ai affect my personal productivity so if you're thinking that stay tuned because that's going to be the next thing that we talk about and how bring toy is seeing the trends for personal use of ai so stay tuned for that Thank you. Thank you. We still have Kwame Asedu on the line, co-founder of Brain Toy. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the personal impacts of AI, impacts of AI on personal productivity. So Kwame, tell us a little bit about that. Like for people who maybe don't have uh, a ton of data like these big companies have, what kind of data are they using to improve their productivity? Like just tell us about that side of AI, not the enterprise side, but the personal side. Okay, so um, there's there's been a lot of talk about big data, big data, and and now it is shifting from from big data to good data. Mm. So AI is not necessarily to be able to adapt or embrace embrace AI does not necessarily mean you have to have this huge chunks of data sitting in in warehouses and and that. If you have some good data or data with, you know, good quality data, then, you know, 
we sometimes speak of we've done we've we've solved problems with two hundred images. Wow. And it's we've solved problems with ten thousand records. Right? But you can also talk about the terabytes and the petabytes and, and, and huge chunks of data. But personally or, or individuals have chunks of or a little bit of, of data sitting in Excel documents, they have data, or even companies sitting in CSV documents, or sometimes even just, just text documents that are sitting there. And these are good data with some good quality. And they can, they can still use these and apply them in solving meaningful problems. And it will, it will really enrich them. For instance, there is an accountant, someone who works as an accountant, and he's, he's a freelancer. And what most accountants do, or big organizations even do, is that when they audit an organization's account, basically they will take a sample of these transactions because there are a whole lot of transactions. Mm. So they'll take a sample of them, and maybe they'll even eliminate anything that is less than a million dollars, right? They'll only care about, you know, the 10 millions and, and so on and so forth. They take a sample, and then they will investigate, and then they come up, they come up with their insights. Now, this person, small startup, decided that they want to be proactive. And so what they did is they began to apply machine learning techniques. And it started with just a little bit of Excel documents or Excel uh, CSV documents that they have. But what AI allowed them to do is that he was able to apply the algorithms to all the transactions, mm. 100% of them. And what AI did was now it is able to learn and detect anomalies. So then he will spend his time to investigate the anomalies and why they are occurring. So he's now better informed to advise his clients. And guess what? We're starting with just those few records. Mm -hmm. Now he's able to scale it. And he's competing with the big, big giants now. Wow. He's scaling the company. So... Right? So oh, wow, interesting. Mm -hmm. Keep going, keep going. Yeah, Sorry, I'm just I'm just trying to take in the implications of what you're saying right now. But keep going. <laughs> yeah. So, and and just to talk about the accounting field, think of budget as an example. You know, there are accountants who do budget, and they budget for what is happening this year, next year's budget, maybe five years out. But they also have historical data, mm. maybe ten years historical data of budgets and the things that influence the budget. And there are people doing this with just CSV or Excel documents that sits on their computer. Maybe they are not even up to 10,000 records. But imagine if you can learn from this, and then AI can predict to you what 2022 budget is and what is influencing that decision, 2023, 2024, right? This is just one of the quick and easiest way in for someone who is not in AI, is mm. an accountant, to be applying AI to in making decisions proactively. Very interesting. And when you get to 2022, you'll be able to check and see that, okay, how close was the AI? And you can feed back the results into it, and then you can continuously allow the algorithm to learn, and then you can continuously improve it. So you said you mentioned good data versus just big data. So what qualifies from your standpoint as good data to be able to to be able to teach? It's like I, I suspect it's like having a good teacher and a bad teacher, right? The AI will learn better if it has a good teacher. So what what is good data 
for AI to be able to use, at least on the maybe on the personal level and maybe even on the organizational level? I would say it, it always depends on on the context mm. and you know and the domain, but people that work on a particular in a particular organization in a particular domain and with particular or specific data sets know which data is good. They also know when there are errors. So think of it. Let's say we want to we have a form that collects postal code in Canada. Right. We all know that it is, you know, alphabet a number and I think a number, and then maybe space, right? We have a format for it. So let's say T3R0R1. It's, it's, it's a good postal code. You as an organization or somebody that works with postal codes know what a good Canadian postal code is. And so if somebody writes that wrong, you can easily go in and you can transform it. You fix the error and then it becomes good data. So I think it all depends on the domain knowledge. And usually people who work in a particular domain understand what good or quality data, data. in that domain is. Yes. And all you need is to collect some of those, not, not terabytes of those, some, some of those, a few records that are usually called the ground truth. Mm. Right? This is the ground truth. So this is the one that you can trust. And you can start from there. And you can begin to apply these algorithms to them, build a solution, and as you collect more data, you feed them back into it. The problem is people always want to wait till they fix all the data quality issues mm. that they have. And for big organizations, you will never start because you will never <laughs> get rid of the data quality issues you have. So look for some of the ones that consistent. You know, so when we talk of good data, we talk of consistency. Mm. We talk of clarity. And, and all of this depends on your domain. And if you're a subject matter expert in that domain or in that area, you know what good data yes. is for your yes. organization and yes. you know what poor data is. So you can easily eliminate, take something that is good and then work with. So, for example, in the finance industry, which I know you've worked, you were a director in a big, one of the biggest financial service companies in the province here. When it, I suspect that in the finance world, you could have certain shifts happening in your data based on extraneous circumstances, right? That might not be captured in your data. And so that's where the role of a subject matter expert would come in to say, yeah, that bit's because of what happened in 2008, for example, the financial crash and all that stuff. So is that like where a subject matter expert's input would be valuable to kind of teach the machine or at least to, to help with this data challenges that you're talking about? Yes, so a subject matter expert is very, is very valuable in the development of any machine learning or AI application. In fact, throughout the life cycle of a solution, you need a subject matter expert. And it begins with you defining a problem. Mm. Now, if your problem is loosely defined, then your solution will also be loosely crafted. Mm. So you have to really nail down the definition of your problem. And then you also identify what data sources could help you solve this problem. And that is where the subject matter expert will come in because there might be issues with the quality of that data. And that subject matter aspect, because they understand the problem and they understand the data, they can tell you what is good and what is not. Then the rest, you can begin to build it. But even still, in order to be ethical, in order to 
be able to implement a solution that could serve the needs of whoever your client is or whoever you are building this solution for. You have to include the subject matter aspect mm -hmm. along the way from the inception, from ideation to development to when you put it in production. So for somebody listening who just is interested in how to use, because I want us to talk about the organizational side as well. That story you told about that in accountants, I found it very interesting. So this person, but just by applying some of these principles, using some of the AI tools available, probably through BrainToy, I guess maybe the personal or the team version, the person was able to scale their data or scale the usefulness of their data to the point now where, you know, they could theoretically be competing with larger organizations who are either they are or are not, I don't know, but at least be able to scale. And so they're doing more to use our language here without doing more, really. They're just leveraging the power of this technology to scale. So how yes. would, yeah. what are some of the other ways like an individual, maybe not even like an accountant, for example, somebody listening to this thinking, okay, I want to start using AI. What are some of the things that will let me know if my industry or if my job or if my business is a good candidate for AI? Because I can think of ways even now, just for what I do, which is very subjective, very human-based, very one-on-one. -on -one. I can think of ways that potentially I'm already using AI. But what are some of those markers for people who are considering AI? What do they want to look out for to be able to tell? Yeah. So one of the things I always personally look, look at is, could I be proactive? So that's a question I'll ask myself mm. versus being reactive. Now, reactive simply means that you always wait for things to happen. So you always get information after the fact. Mm. And that's one of the differences between the current business intelligence that companies have versus, you know, trying to adopt machine learning. So if either an individual or a company or, or a big organization, today we write a lot of reports and I have these reports and they tell me what has happened. So how many did I sell? How many this? How many that? Or how many customers did I lose? But you are getting the information after the fact. And it's fine. It tells you, it gives you what has happened in, you know, in history. And, and usually it's a snapshot of, of what has happened. But could I look into the future? Could I have a peek into the future? Because then now I have a lot of power. Could I be proactive here by seeing what could happen? So that's, that's one of the questions I ask, I usually tell people to ask themselves. And then now after I have asked myself that way, do I have a particular problem that I, ha I can identify? Hmm. Then I'll think of my organization. And you can usually brainstorm and have maybe a list of 10 different problems that you have. Now, these problems, you now tie them to value. Okay. Would it be useful for me to solve them, to solve this, these problems? And again, I am not talking of being reactive. I'm talking of being proactive, proactive trying to have, yes, trying to have a peek into the future. So if it's resource planning, whatever it is, can I have a peek into the future? So now when I do that, what is the value? What is the return for me as an individual or as an organization? And then I'll look at, do I have resources to actually accomplish this mm. or do I need help? Right now. Resources simply means you have people with the skill to help you. So if I'm an individual, 
do I have the skill to do this myself? Can I go and acquire this skill? Now, would it be too late by the time I acquire mm-hmm. the skill mm-hmm. or I can spend the time to do so? Right? So it all depends on the context. Now, if I'm if I'm if it's a business, then it might be too late to actually, you know, send everybody to school to acquire this. So you can get experts in there to work with you. Now, the problem most companies do is that they get experts come in and sometimes they will sell them a report, mm. which is not machine learning yes. or which is not AI. Yes, yes. And, or they'll get a very fancy dashboard or a very fancy PowerPoint presentation. Still, Still not you AI. Need to make, mm. Yeah, you need to make sure it is practical and you can actually integrate it into business problems. And maybe it will lead to you innovating some of the ways in which your organization runs, some of the processes. That becomes a consequence of you trying to adapt AI. But it is practical. You can integrate it into maybe legacy or new applications, and you can actually put it in the hands of customers. Maybe it's external customers or internal customers. Mm. Then you can begin to measure the value of what AI is. So individuals... If, if, if it's not an organization and it's an individual, then once I realize I don't have the skill, maybe I have a different purpose. Maybe for me it is I want to pivot and I want to get into a new career. As an example, I work in oil and gas and I want to shift. Or maybe I want to be able to adapt it in my own career. Right. So I can spend the time to acquire the knowledge and it will automatically open my eyes to what is possible in my domain. Ah, in I my see, career. I see. And then, so almost like a secondary application. It's not immediately taking AI and using it. It's acquiring knowledge about AI. And then pretty much your story is now being able to now see, oh, okay, I work because I can think right away. And a lot of this stuff, I think a lot, some of us do in the, in the background with very low sophistication is, oh, I've noticed that this tends to happen. So I will adapt this way. But the confidence level is low, right? Because you don't have the data to back up. You don't always need data. I don't know. I don't think, but you can make intuitive business decisions, but more and more people are leaning towards data driven business decisions. So I, I really like yes. that 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 two-sided approach to it is yeah, on one hand you could take AI and use it immediately. On the other hand, you could learn some stuff about AI and that will now open your eyes to what's possible with AI. Speaking of what's possible with AI, what are some of the most exciting um, transformations that Braintoy has been has been working on or has implemented for some of your either personal or organizational clients. The reason I ask this is because I think, I believe it will help listeners understand what's actually possible in concrete terms when you when you adopt a, pro, a system like your, your MLOS. Is that machine learning operating system? Is that what it stands for? Yes. Woohoo! Yes. I totally yes. just guessed that and I nailed it. Okay. So like for people to oh, understand you know what's possible, give us some of the exciting ones, some of the ones that you're personally very happy about or probably, I'm sure you're happy about all of them, but which ones kind of stand out? Yeah. One of them, which is which is not necessarily a use case, and maybe I'll, I'll talk about one one that has to do with processes mm-hmm. and another that is a use case. Okay, yeah, yeah. There is, there is this thing called MLOps, you know, which is machine learning operations. So companies are adopting AI. They are trying to use this technology to build solutions. But what happens is that they find that there are 
the process or the pipeline for developing this AI solution is such that it's so cumbersome mm. and chaotic at times, such that it even takes them maybe six months to be able to deliver a solution. Wow. And by the time they are done, they don't even they don't know where the code is or you know, it's sitting with one person. And when that person leaves, they are not able to replicate it. Mm. Right? There are different versions of this, this solution. There are no documentations of them. In fact, they are not able to even explain the solution because it's a black box. It was developed by one person. Mm. Sometimes there are even unintended consequences and their AI is not ethical, so to speak. And there might be, you know, it might come back to damage their reputation in future. They might not even be aware. And so to, to actually be able to organize the development of an AI product from beginning to end is what is called that, that MLOps. And one of the key things is ensuring data, the consistency of data from when it's ingested into a platform to when you deploy this in production, either as a microservice or as maybe a, a batch uh, a, a batch processing thing where people will just score and, and make decisions, right? So creating this platform with built-in MLOps that organizes the development, that makes sure that there, there is version control, that makes sure that everything is automatically documented, that makes sure that there is peer reviews so that you can avoid unintended consequences, mm. that you are not just building experiments, but you can actually deploy this and integrate them into your website, your chatbot, your CRM at the same time and put it in the hands of customers internally or externally. It's one of the things that MLOS have solved. And I'm very, very excited about mm. this with allowing continuous integration, continuous development with this MLOS with built-in MLOS. And companies that we work with really love this. So that's one of the biggest problems I'm excited about. That's... Now, when it comes to some of the... Yes, oh, no, go ahead, go ahead. Some of the interesting use cases out there. One of the ones that I'm also excited about, which we are currently uh, working on, is gas emission. Okay. There are a lot of oil and gas plants today that have these these gases running through, you know, pipelines and you know so many different things in in their plants. And they have employees around. They have safe, safety standards they have to meet. But sometimes there are these gas leaks and it's very difficult for you to detect these gas leaks and some of these gases are also poisonous mm. to the human and to the environment but what you could do is that if you have video recordings there could easily be infrared images that are, or, or pictures or videos that are taken by flying drones across these plants and with machine learning and AI you are able to get this data from the drones and you're able to detect gas leaks and emission leaks mm. so that you can proactively, you can fix them as soon as they happen. And in fact, you can even take it down to the appliances that if something like that is about to happen, you are able to detect the faults before they even happen and then you can fix them. It has a huge impact economically. It contributes to you meeting your safety standards also has a, has a huge impact on the environment. So I am, that's, that's one of the use cases that I'm, I'm very excited about. And you know what? The, the beauty of some of these techniques is that, in fact, we have started talking to an organization in that we can help this, we can use these same techniques to help with the wildfires. 
because we have all these if if you can process videos from drones mm-hmm. then you can easily apply the same technique to detecting wildfires so when you fly these drones Over, all around yeah. which has been a big problem for us here in alberta and we always get this smoke i think it cleared up this yeah week. yeah we had a lot of it months. over the last few weeks exactly so sometimes just at the, at the onset you know if you fly these you are able to determine because not every place is as flat as alberta mm. you know some of them have forests and so when fire starts you are not even able to but when you fly these around you are able to detect and with machine learning you can detect the onset of some of these fires and we can proactively help in, in mitigating the risk of this thing spreading and causing a lot of hazards two 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 interesting uh, doors you opened there and i think we should go into them one at a time i think i'll leave the ethical ai as the second door because you just mentioned that and i just know if if if, if if I'm curious, I'm guessing the listeners are curious too about the difference between ethical and unethical AI. But before we go there, it's interesting to talk about how the the technologies are integrating. So, for example, you mentioned infrared cameras. And I think it was Steve Johnson talks about this in his book, Where Good Ideas Come From. He talks about the adjacent possible. Some things are not possible un- until some other things happen first. So I think about how if we didn't have infrared cameras, we would not be able to, say, get the visual data that would teach the machine that, look, there's a leak over there. And so is that some, how much of that is, is, is playing out in, in the world of AI for organizations? Do you come against certain barriers because the quote-unquote adjacent possible just isn't there yet? Or is it, is it a case where we're at a place now where, yeah, pretty much whatever is possible to an extent, we have the technology to, to support it? Yeah, we do come across that. And, and, and in fact, there are just... I think most people who have tried to embrace AI come across that. Remember I said sometimes you can brainstorm and have like 10 different different ideas mm-hmm. or different problems. And sometimes what you will realize is that for a, particular, for a particular problem, you don't have data for, right? So, in fact, we are working with, uh, we are talking and we've begun, it's a, it's a big material engineering company in Germany. And it's a, it's a funded project with McGill University and BrainToy, all of us together. And one of the things we are, we are trying to do is, again, to apply this computer vision to detecting some of, the, some, of the, some of the issues that might crop up on an assembly line for the doors of trains. Oh. So one of the problems you find is that on that assembly line, there are things that need to happen, right? And, and these things happen. Now, AI could be checking just to make sure things are in order. But another thing is also sometimes defects on even these doors when they come out. Mm. And they realized that initially we had not collected some of this data for the doors or for the defects on the doors. And it could be like a, maybe like a, even just a diesel oil or maybe there is a dent. Mm. Or, so now you have to go back and try to capture some of this data, which means that you have to have a lot of pictures of these and then maybe you draw circles around them or squares around them, and then you categorize them. So you have maybe 20 different images with dents, 20 different images with maybe diesel, because maybe it's just diesel. It's not, mm. it's not actually a defect. So these are some of the things that happen. In, in that case, you just have to wait. Now, sometimes the wait is just momentarily. 
So you just have to collect data so you can have what we discussed, the ground truth mm. that any machine can learn. But there are, there are areas where, you know, maybe you have to wait on technology. We haven't really come across that. But imagine if infrared uh, images were not here, cameras were not here. Imagine if there were no drones right, uh, here right. now, then it would have been difficult for us to capture some of these images because now we had to we have to think of a different way of solving the problem. We might come up with something, but it might probably not be efficient until technology has evolved to solve that problem really well. Wow, I can just see a whole industry you know, popping up around solving these problems. So if you had a really niche company or really niche industry that would benefit hugely from AI, but can't because there's this other thing that's kind of in the way, somebody could easily pop up and say, okay, my company will build that. And then that becomes this huge thing that just explodes. So yeah, the, the potential is really, really just open with this, with this, I, I, get, I get it now. It is in many ways like electricity. Right, it will power yeah. a lot of things. Yes, completely agree. It opens a lot of doors. It opens there are a lot of opportunities. Mm -hmm. And and as we talk about these doors, maybe I'll also just like to there, there is also this fear. Mm -hmm. right? People are uh, sometimes afraid of embracing AI because they think, especially people who do routine things. You know, they are afraid because they think that they they are going to be replaced. By, by this AI. You don't have to be afraid because like we are talking about opportunities. Every time AI solves, you, you, up, you embrace AI, or utilize AI in solving a problem, it actually creates more jobs. It, it improves efficiency. And yes, some people might be displaced because if you are doing a routine thing, that thing, maybe AI will do it. But you cannot take the human out of the equation. Right. Right. They, they're, they're, the human is always in the loop. And so even if your process or your work was done by five people, and then now maybe because there is AI, two people have to do it. What you find is that you are actually freed to do a whole lot more for your organization. And we've never seen people being laid off because they embraced AI. No, we've seen them even hire more because now they are, they are getting... They are improving efficiencies, as an example. They are reducing costs. But because of that, maybe the result is they are enriching customer and get customer experience. And so they have more business. Mm. And sometimes there have been new revenue streams for that for the organization that embraced AI. We, I have never seen where people are laid off because, because they embraced AI. AI. No. I've always seen new roles, new jobs new opportunities for people, in fact, people to even move up when they begin to think and to embrace AI. So that fear, if you are afraid of it, please don't. Embrace it because it has a whole lot of opportunities it's, for it's all It's that of us. concept of creating space, isn't it? Because if you're so, if your company or as an, as an individual, if you're so tied up, I'll give you an example of this exact thing you talked about. Now for me, because I don't have a big team of staff, I use contractors every now and then. This podcast, for example, I came across mm -hmm. a software that's one of these software as a service solutions that that does voice recognition, does a lot of cool stuff with podcasts. And what would have taken me or an editor maybe three hours to do, this software will do it. As it's learning my voice and learning how to process these things, it'll do it maybe in 15 minutes, give or take five or 10 minutes. Now, theoretically, that opens up 
two and a half hours at least that I could put into content creation. And then if that scales, now I have more clients to work with and I'll need to employ more people to service those clients. So I even as a, as a relatively small, almost like a one man operation, you know, for what I do with a few, with some support, I can see how just this one software solution based on AI has kind of grown the pie, if you will. So I, and that I think will scale for bigger organizations. Yes. Very yes. cool. Yeah, that is always the case. That's that's always been the case. But I think people are a bit a bit afraid of AI, I think. And that might be because of this issue of ethical. So while we're here, let's talk about this word you threw out just then, ethical AI. What does that mean? What is ethical AI and what, I suppose what would be unethical AI? Yeah. So there are there are some cases where AI has been has been biased towards a certain group of people or a certain, a certain category of people. And some of these biases introduced sometimes, maybe based on the data that has been collected, but sometimes they are also introduced by the person that developed the, 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 the solution mm. just because of how they apply the principles in the development. And so when that happens, then the decision that is made affects maybe favors a particular group of people, but negatively impacts another group of people. There is this one that is popular, so I, I can talk about it. A couple of years ago, I don't know if you heard where Amazon came out to talk about one of the, uh, the, rec the a recruitment system that basically had been biased towards women for a couple of years, maybe for five years. Mm. And this was just because of, you know, it, it, they took care of it internally. But think of, Think of the impact on women who could have qualified to be hired in those positions, but were not able to. Because the AI, the principles were applied in a way that made it unfavorable for, toward exactly. women. Hmm. Exactly. So when that happens, then it is not ethical, right? When that happens, then it is biased. And the impact is that Amazon is a big company and for some of those things, they are able to. They have been able to bounce back. But if you are not that big, then the, it could damage the reputation of your company. Right. Because it's having an adverse effect on people. So when when we talk about about ethical AI, that's that's basically what you want to avoid. Right. You just want don't want to build something that will have an adverse effect on other people. Other people. And this. This ethical AI could be a whole conversation, you know. And that's, yeah, that the, 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 the gears are spinning. For, <laughs> exactly, for, for hours. But there are a lot of things that you can do to build responsible AI solutions. And I always tell people that one of the things you could do, one of the easiest things is be humble and at least get someone to check your work. Get someone to peer review your work before you put it in production. That's one of the easiest things. Without us getting into the deep, you know, the nitty-gritties of how you applied it and, and AI governance and AI governance frameworks and packages and all of that, at least one of the simplest things you could do is get some, do some, document your work, your assumptions, your data, and then get somebody else to review it's it peer review. before yeah. you put it in production. Because if you didn't catch something, then they might catch it and they will critique you. They'll give you feedback and then you could fix it. And that's something that you mentioned is built into 
the brain toy solution, right? That peer review process. I recall you mentioned that briefly. Yes. So that's some of the yes, some do. of the ways you what's the word I'm looking for? Protect or prevent these kinds of even unconsciously people could be biased, right? And that makes it into into the intelligent into the machine, essentially. Yeah. No, we take we take that very seriously. So if you look at a lot of platforms, they do have they they have a pipeline for developing AI solutions, and it usually comes starts with ingesting data, and then they will apply the machine learning models. You know, maybe let's say they define a problem, then they will look for the data sources, they will ingest it, they will apply machine learning models, they will evaluate the models, and then they put them in production. Now, because we take it so seriously, we added another layer mm. in that pipeline. So, in addition to getting your data and transforming all of that applying models. Once you apply those models and you evaluate them, we have a module for governance mm. where we try to abide by the model governance, uh, model management frameworks that are even established. In financial institutions, there's a model management framework by OSFI, a body here in, in Canada. And financial institutions have to abide by these model management policies from OSFI. And some of these policies influence the development of a governance framework in BrainToy, which we automate and include it in the platform. So because this is really, if you use our product and you build a solution that damages not just your reputation, but is also biased towards people that are using your product, we think that is a reflection on us mm. because you're using our product and we want to help you. We are partners together. We actually don't see you as a, as a client. We see you as a as partner. A partner. Yeah. And so in order to help, we take governance very seriously and we build that into our product. And as technology evolves and as more research comes out and more packages, we'll continue to update that to make sure that it's always serving uh, clients well. That's, that's, yeah. And, you know, I don't know how robust or sophisticated the law is around what you can and can't do with AI. But I think that's something not unlike internet laws, right? It's like we're all just trying to figure this thing out as we go along. So I think having that in a quote unquote, this is going to be a terrible pun, but in a proactive way, proactively thinking of governance, even before it necessarily becomes unlike, you know, I'm sure there are industries where you could get away with anything, honestly, if you don't. And But it will come back to bite you later on. But right now, because the laws, I suspect, are just not as sophisticated around this technology, people might not even know that ethical AI is a thing. Anything that will give them a competitive advantage, they might just want to take it, not understanding the ethical implications of that, right? Yeah, yes. Thank you so much for an enlightening uh, conversation. I feel like, like you said, there are aspects of it that we could continue to unpack for hours and hours and hours. But I, I want to close or start to close by talking about, because it is about 80-20 productivity, I always ask the guests on the show, what is their, what is your typical productive routine in a given day? And there's no right or wrong answer. For you, Kwame, what is your productivity routine? How do you go through your day in a productive way? Yeah, because it's a conversation, I'll just throw this in there. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've seen some of the videos going around where people are just making fun and recording uh, themselves that I wake up at 4 a.m. and I go to the gym and I meditate. And yeah, I, yeah, I've seen some know, of those. I've seen one or two of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> My super so uber you, productive morning, something like that. Yeah. 
but no, I, I uh, so for me, usually I, I always have a to work wise. Mm. So there, there are two things. First, I'll talk about work. So work, I usually have a to do list. Mm. M- most times I have a sticky note in my office and I will write some of the things that I have to do at most. And I don't go far out more than two days okay so there are things that i have to accomplish so i always so i always have sticky notes so i'll write i'll write them down my wife is always making fun of me like you're a technology guy but you're always (laughs) i was thinking that totally in my head (laughs) (laughs) yeah so i will write my to-dos and then as i as i go through I'll, i'll just be checking them off and and that to me, when I look at it, it gives me a, a sense of accomplishment, mm. you know, that I have accomplished something during the day. And it also a motiv- it's also a motivation factor for me because I, I've done more. So there is that thing for me to push to do more. But it also helps me identify what I have missed so that I will, even if I'm busy, I can carve out time and I'll go back to it and finish it because I have to, especially when there are deadlines. So that's, that's one of the things I do to just make sure that I'm always very, very proactive. Mm. But I also take notes. Even even this conversation, I do have a pen and a, and a book here mm. with me, as you can see. Yep. <laughs> and once in a while, I'll write something in it. And I, and I read this book as I'm sitting on my, in a couch or something, even watching TV, just go through them so that I know. So I'm always... That's one of the things I do. I keep track of it. I also don't multitask. Oh, interesting. I don't do two mm. or three different things at the same time. If I take this, I focus and I finish it. Then I take another, I focus and, and finish I finish it. it. I personally think that for me, that works for me. Uh, as opposed to trying to put so many different things together. Yes. So, so that is it. Now, I, I have a family too. You know, I have a wife and a son. And, and you know, they are the most important thing. I said thing, the most important people, mm. <laughs> people in my, in, in my life. And it's just so nice spending time with them yes. and, and seeing them. So during the day, even at work, I'll call and check on them. They'll call and check on me. And, you know, that, that keeps me also going. Right. But unlike, I also have a spiritual routine. So, you know, I, God, family and work. Right. So I also carve out time and I make sure I do that. I, I, I spend quality time doing that and building a strong relationship between me and God. And is, is that something you would say is because you that hierarchy is God, family, work. Is that spiritual practice something that you find? Because some of, some of the things I've learned as I've studied this subject of productivity is people who are very productive have a solid root and a solid base of some kind. It might be the change they want to make in the world. It's always something that's bigger than the work they're doing. So would you say that spiritual practice is is a root or some kind of foundation for you? Or is it something that is an add-on? So that is the foundation. That's the root. That's the core. Mm. You know, I, I think I, I, I think you have to be governed by values. Right. You know, we talk about ethics as an example. You yes. have to have values. You have to have ethics. You have to have standards, you know, moral standards, whatever standards you, you have to have. And you, you you would have acquired that in some way. Now, for me, all of these come from my relationship with God. Mm. And those govern me in doing what is right. And that includes treating people fairly, treating people nicely, being nice to be, being respectable. You know, all, all, all of these, being honest in my dealings with people. Right. There, there are a host, a host of them. Mm. And 
if I am able to really live by those, I find that my relationship with my family is fantastic. Mm. Right? My relationship with people I work with is fantastic. So I am also happy in general. I don't feel empty. I have a fulfillment in life and I have a purpose also. So that, that spiritual foundation for me is, is core because it governs everything I do. And if I'm actually able to live by that and apply it in my day-to-day life, I, I am generally successful in everything I do. Interesting. Yeah. So it is, yes, it is the, the, like you said, it's the foundation and everything else grows yeah. out of that. Thanks so much for sharing that. That was very inspiring. Very inspiring. It it, it echoes something that if, if my very first guest actually talked about is living from your values. And that's what it sounds like. Okay. The last question, maybe not the last, but the one I always, and I must ask is 80, 20 productivity. What is your 20%? What is the 20% that gives you 80% of your results? And it could be anything. I, I, I think- yeah, it's my family. Oh. Like I said, you know, I spend time with them and I am I am happy. Even even if I have a really bad day. Mm. You know, I have a really bad day and I and I go home and I, I he my son he runs up to me and then we have a conversation. All of a sudden my energy is back. Wow. You know, and and I, I talk to my wife about, you know, what what happened and, and what went wrong and she's very insightful and she would she would just say you know, one or two things that, you know, just get me thinking. And, and sometimes I don't even have to worry and I don't know. I'm just worrying for no, for no reason. <laughs> right. And then all of a sudden my energy is back. But mm. so that's, that's it. But I also, I also like uh, sports, not, not watching. Mm-hmm. Actually playing uh, and not on a Wii, not on a, yeah. <laughs> like actually going outside. <laughs> going outside to play. Yes. Yeah. So in fact, today I have my stuff in my, I'm going to play tennis this evening so i i play soccer but i injured my knee so i i don't play that uh, tennis is also hard on my knee not still not I, like I soccer, make time to, yeah so, yeah so i i make time to to exercise but the, the thing with me is i'm not great i'm not one of those guys who go to the gym to to work out i actually need a motivation to mm, go to the gym mm-hmm. so if you are my friend and you go to the gym and you push me then i'll go with mm-hmm. you but even that i go for the association honestly yeah not because I really so I have to find a way to work out and the way I do that is to f- is to play a game that I'm interested in right so I like playing tennis so when I play it I work out I like playing soccer so when I play soccer you work I out. work out so for you listening who struggles with working out Kwame just gave you a little bit of a hack there don't just go work out for its own sake play a game you actually enjoy right that makes you want to go <laughs> and, and actually do get some exercise in Wow. So thank you so much for all the insights, Kwame. Really appreciate, I really appreciate having you on the, on the show. We've covered a lot of ground and a lot, a lot to think about the future of AI, how it's going to change the world potentially, and how maybe we can start to engage with it wherever we are as individuals or organizations. Anything um, you want to kind of leave us with in regards to everything we've talked about? Oh, I would say it's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for having me. And for those listening to us, please don't wait till it is too late. I've had a quote. Somebody said the, the, the best time to embrace AI was 10 years ago. Wow. The second best time is now. Because if you don't embrace it today, you'll be playing catch up. 
So for those who so, do want to engage, I'm going to jump in, sorry. What's the thing they can yeah. do now? Do they just go and learn yeah, about so, it? Yeah, so listening to a podcast like this is one of the ways you can educate yourself. Mm. Like I said, we all don't have to be electricians, <laughs> right? So um, learning about it sometimes basically means getting some ideas about it. And it's just about listening to podcasts, watching some videos here and there. There's no shortage of those on YouTube and in, in other, other places. Just educate yourself so that you can spot opportunities. Mm. So that's the first person that just wants to educate themselves. And then there is the person that also wants to really be able to apply this, who wants to learn and apply this either to pivot their career and shift or to use it in their career. That is where you can take courses. So there are, if you go to Coursera, there are a lot of things there. SAIT has the applied machine learning course that you can take and you can learn. And you don't have to be a coder. So those who know how to code, you can, you can learn how to code. But if you don't know how to code, still you can take this course and you will be able to apply them. And if you're, on a, if you're an organization, then you don't have to, like we said, the, the, the best time was 10 years ago. Mm. So begin to apply it now. And for an organization, you cannot be taking all your, your team to, to, to learn AI before you adapt it. You can work with organizations. You can hire one or two people that can begin to help you think about what is possible in AI so that you can begin to apply it. And for all of us, maybe what I want to talk about is, is mindset. Mm. And sometimes when I speak, I talk about this because you need a mindset to be able to embrace this. There is a, uh, there is a, a book called Mindset and Becoming that was written by Carol Dweck, who is a cognitive psychologist in Stanford. And I don't know if you've read that. Oh, yes. You might have. I see it more in your head, yes. And you see that she talks about, she differentiates between two groups of people. She talks about the people with a fixed mindset and then the people with a growth mindset. And she said that the fixed mindset are people who believe that ability and in it, you know, cannot be acquired or cannot be grown because we are who we are. Fixed. And usually we'll make excuses that I can't learn how to how to drum, how to play the keyboard. I can't I can't do math. I can't do this. We make excuses. But the growth mindset, people who believe that ability and capabilities are things that you can improve. And those people will usually learn to improve. And she said there's a high correlation between success across the life, the lifetime of people, based on her research, with people with a growth mindset and success. Mm. Right. So personally, what I take from that when I talk to people is that you need to have a growth mindset to embrace these technologies. But when I talk to people in organization, I also say that it's people that make up a company. Right. So yes. what is the mindset of your organization? Is your organization the type that says, this is how things have always been? For the past 20 years, we've always been doing things this way and it works. The past 50 years, this is how things work. If you do that, you are embedding a fixed mindset in your organization and you might be found wanting in future. Hmm. So as an individual, embrace a growth mindset and infuse that growth mindset in your organization so that you can embrace emerging technologies. Then you will be able to survive. Inspire, yes, indeed. Right? A world that is always changing to become, to become something new. And if we are going to live in this world, then we also have to change exponentially with this kind of world. And a growth mindset will help us to be able to do that in embracing emerging technologies, solving problems creatively, and building their future together. Well said. 
I, I, there's nothing to add to that at all. That is the perfect place to end this interview. I hope you've enjoyed listening. I hope you take what you've learned. More importantly, like we always say on 8020 Productivity, it's not how much you know, it's what you do with what you know. Thank you so much, Kwame, for being on the show and hope to talk to you again real soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to 8020 Productivity. If you enjoy the show, then subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. And if you'd like to learn about how Anthony can help you or your organization drive gains through smart, focused productivity, then head over to anthonysani.com. Until the next episode, stay true to your vital few.